Welcome to the Mama Bear Apologetics Podcast. A podcast where we teach you to roar like a mother. And by roar, we mean recognize the message, offer discernment, argue for a healthier approach, and reinforce these ideas with your kids. Unless you want to growl around your house. I mean, that's cool too. <laughs> You're like, check it, we keep it reels. <laughs> that's so bad. You're awesome. Mama Bear Apologetics is a listener-supported program, so if you like what we do, head on over to the Mama Bear Apologetics website and click support. It's time to rise up, ladies. Rise up, Mama Bears. This might not affect your faith, but it might affect your children's. Hello, friends. We've got a special surprise and are releasing both parts two and three of Simon Brace's Spiritual Warfare series for a little Christmas bonus. But before we get into that, a few quick reminders. First, the Women in Apologetics annual conference will be taking place on January 24th and 25th at Biola University in La Mirada, California. The keynote speakers will be Joe Vitale and Alicia Wood from Ravi Zacharias Ministries, as well as Jeannie Jones, author of Finding Jesus in the Old Testament, and finally, me, Hilary Morgan Ferrer. This year's theme is Finding Your Voice, and we will be looking at the various ways that we can engage our children and our culture on topics like identity issues, abortion, art and apologetics, and we'll even have two of our own mama bears giving breakout talks, Hilary Short will be speaking on conversational apologetics, and Lindsay Medenwalt, our world religions expert, will be speaking on world religions. So a few more speaking engagements coming up. Uh, Since John and I will be in Charlotte for the holidays, I've asked my friend Amanda Burke to see if any of the churches that have done the Mama Bear apologetics study would like to meet up. So uh, good news, they do. If you are anywhere near the Charlotte or Fayetteville area, or Lillington, North Carolina, kind of within that radius, uh, we will be at Antioch Baptist Church in Lillington, North Carolina on Saturday, December 28th at 10 a.m. and just be talking with some of the local churches about the study and about what we do. Uh, Also coming up, if you're in the Dallas-Fort Worth area around Wednesday, February 5th, I'll be speaking to the parents at Frisco Bible Church regarding how to understand doubt, really important talk. And then a couple weeks later, I'll be at Grace Church in Eden Prairie, Minnesota, going over the Mama Bear Apologetics book with the parents and discussing how worldviews have been taking over our educational system and what we as parents and guardians can do to prepare our kids for these ideas. Um, And finally, last piece of announcement, I swear, uh, this has been a banner year for Mama Bear Apologetics. And when I first started this ministry, it was just basically me and a friend recording podcasts and uh, writing a blog here and there. The response to this ministry has been amazing. And I have since decided that I really need to focus on this full time, which I have for the past two years. Um, the, uh, the first year of full-time work, I did not receive any salary. And this year I've only taken $500 a month. Um, and I've relied mostly on volunteers to help out with other tasks, but the needs have gotten a lot greater than expected. And I really need help. And this is where I'm just asking for help. Um, and I feel especially burdened to be able to hire people to help me with all the administrative tasks. I have workers who are willing, who are capable, who are gifted and skilled, but I would really like to have the funds to turn Mama Bear Apologetics into a well-functioning ministry and not just a few people doing things on the side. So if you have been blessed by Mama Bear Apologetics, we have two ways for you to contribute financially. We have a non-tax deductible Patreon page loaded at patreon.com forward slash join 
forward slash Mama Bear Apologetics, where you can give a monthly gift. And we also have a tax deductible link that's located on the Mama Bear Apologetics page where you can give a one-time or a monthly tax deductible gift. And every cent you give us goes towards the building up of the ministry and trying to get more content and more training for the moms out there. Because I truly believe that when you get the moms, you get the whole family. And I would actually not say that that's true for everything in the church, but I have actually found that to be especially true with apologetics. So without further ado, please enjoy parts two and three of the podcast series on apologetics as spiritual warfare. And I pray that you have a very Merry Christmas. Welcome to another episode of Mama Bear Apologetics. I'm Hillary. And I'm Amy. And we are continuing on with part two of the talk by Simon Brace on the role of apologetics in spiritual warfare and just basically on spiritual warfare in general. And some people call this talk Simon Brace on the Crisis of American Protestants. So a lot of the stuff that he's he's seen going on, he is kind of talking about what's happening in the American church. But this is a guy that's lived in, that's, he is South African. He currently lives in South Africa. He has been lived in Europe, I think he said, for at least 10 years and lived in the United States for eight while he was getting his seminary training. So he has seen a lot of this and he is really breaking down what spiritual warfare looks like. So over here in the Protestant church, again, have a tendency to kind of shy away from that. We leave that to kind of the charismatic church and think, oh, they're into all that (laughs) stuff. We're into the more, you know, intellectual, the real stuff. And basically, we we cut off our nose despite our face. We we ignore one of the major aspects of Christian living, which is the act of spiritual warfare. And what Simon's talking about is we don't need to just know what tools that we have at our disposal. We need to know the nature of the warfare, as he said in the earlier podcast. Any man who has a hand can hold a sword, but you have to be trained on how to use that sword if you want to be effective at all. So the part that we just left off with was him talking about how people are so unable to see the spiritual warfare. And he was using the analogy of, I think, during World War II, where they built all these fake towns so that when the Germans were coming through, they would bomb these fake towns. Or if they were wanting to come in from one direction, but they wanted to trick their opponents into thinking they were coming from the others, they had made a bunch of fake tanks on one side, and then they disguised the real tanks on the other side so that the German forces went after all the fake tanks. But then you had the real tanks coming on behind them, and they had that deception to make them go after the wrong things. And basically, the analogy in here is how we as Christians allow the enemy to distract us from what the actual issue is. He is the father of lies. And if we expect anything other than absolute lies coming from him, then we do not know who we're dealing with. So that's where we left off. And so we're just going to continue on where we left off because I think this is one of the most important talks I've ever heard. Absolutely. You're sitting there and you're like, oh my gosh, why why do I not hear about this more often? And yeah, it's all about the nature of the battle and how to understand your enemy. And that this battle is, it's emphasizing Ephesians 6, 12, especially that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, which we so often get caught up in. We think that it's against this atheist or that atheist. And it's, it's not against the, it's against the evil and the spiritual warfare that's behind all of that as well. And so he's just emphasizing that it's against the dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Which again, I think a lot of times Christians kind of shy away from because they think, oh, it sounds like we're talking about the boogeyman. 
you just need to get over that, sweeties. You, <laughs> you need to get over that. The stuff we're, the stuff he's talking about here is real. The scripture is very clear that our enemy is very real and he very much has a plan and he's very conniving. And if we do not understand his schemes, then our, you know, it doesn't matter how much spiritual armor that we have, we're just going to be sitting pawns because we need to know how he's going to attack. So continuing on with uh, Simon Brace. Worse than this is our efforts to counteract this erosion then either end up in some kind of theological compromise on orthodoxy, and this comes in all sorts of forms. We need to make our now Starbucks Jesus in a flannel shirt, sipping a latte at Starbucks more attractive and popular in our super hyper seeker sensitive environment. Or consider for a moment our ever-emerging new church movements of every stripe who seek to sanitize, sanitize the pagan culture and win folks to Christ by making Christian music and art less cheesy. And this is all led by a bizarre legion of pastors who are accessorizing or gelling their hair while squeezing their little guts into tight jeans while talking about a cool Jesus. <laughs> Or consider our fundamentalist brothers, those who are perpetually angry about the non-essential issues that they wish were mentioned in the early church creeds. Or perhaps fundamentalism of the sort, which prides itself on being hated by everyone and embarrasses itself when its leaders, who have possibly read the Bible many times, are social goons and are fools when they open their mouths in the public arena. Or perhaps conservative evangelicalism. And I consider myself to be in this camp. And yes, this is going to be controversial. Those conservative evangelicals who think that sound exegesis and expository preaching are the savior of the church. Why do Christians continue to lose? Why does conservative evangelicalism seem to fail? Why is it that when there is a battle, the liberals get it all? The buildings, the institutions, and within the culture. I take it that one of the chief reasons for this is because we have trained no defenders of the faith. If we live behind enemy lines and Satan is in control and nobody is defending the faith, then does it matter if you're giving a sound exegetical sermon in a culture which, in which postmodernism and the abandonment of truth reign supreme? Where then should we begin? Well, a good starting point is to begin with a devotional on the nature of Satan. That's a rather scandalous idea to many. Are we meant to be studying Jesus? Well, when reading books about warfare, a significant amount of attention is always given to the generals. Why? For they are the men who manage the battlefields and it is their strategy which makes a difference. I think the logic is the same with respect to Satan. So beginning with Satan and his cohorts, the question then is how do we confront the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms? For according to Ephesians 12, this is our chief enemy. Do we become frantic about removing every pagan influence in our lives? Should we take out all our Harry Potter books and burn them outside? Oh my goodness. Should I burn my Quran? 
Does the New Testament not give examples of people who did precisely this kind of thing? Unfortunately, this, this is often the kind of nonsense that you hear from the pulpits. Somehow mere possession of a book entails that somehow it will poison the atmosphere in your life. Some evangelicals advocate that negative thinking is the chief poison in a person's life. Unfortunately, these ideas and many of them, many others like them, lead to a form of hysteria within the Christian ranks when it comes to warfare. Many Christians on the topic of spiritual warfare have turned the universe into a haunted house. There is a demon lurking behind every bush. Every global event becomes a catalyst for the return of Jesus Christ. This hysteria is then turned into a hysterical circus by Christians who are steeped in their ignorance. The irony of some of this profound ignorance on the part of evangelical Christians is that we are often employing occultic practices to combat the occult. Chief amongst us is the suppression of the Christian mind. That's what the cults do. Consider the current fascination with the powers of positive thinking and speaking things into existence. Apparently you are dysfunctional if you don't think positively, for your thoughts create reality. Many evangelicals apparently have the power to speak things into existence. I need to meet these folks. <laughs> I, simp- I wish that was the case. I come from Zimbabwe. I don't doubt that your attitude changes your, your position, your disposition, and can profoundly affect your outlook on life. But to then suggest that if I, to, to suggest then that I can just think and speak the words, and that reality will begin to iron itself out, and all of the cosmos will conform to my words, is nothing short of paganism one-on-one. The idea of speaking things into existence is the Star Wars view of reality, and it is distinctively pantheistic and pagan to the core. This is the avatar view of reality. Plug yourself with your ponytail into Mother Earth and tap into the energy fields as you seek to manipulate the force or Mother Earth in order to dismantle those pernicious fat cat capitalists and their greed and their hatred of trees and shrubs and along the way the U.S. Marines who love to go around the planet warring with the innocent. Can I just point out real quick one of the reasons why I love Simon is he just does not mince words. No. He, he does not care who he offends. And, but at the same time, it's like, even though you're like, oh, this is hard, you're kind of shrugging your shoulders and going, it's right. he's, he's got a point. I know. Anyway. Kind of reminds me a little bit of that Ben Shapiro quote of facts don't care about your feelings. He's like, there's like, no, this is how it is. If it offends you, you change. But yeah. one of those things that I was thinking of as he's speaking is this reminds me so much of a Kevin Spacey quote from the movie, The Usual Suspects. And if you haven't mm. seen the movie, it's, it's this investigation over this crime and Kevin Spacey is the guy that's being investigated. And for the whole movie, he appears to be somewhat crippled and deformed. And so he's being interrogated to see if he was a part of this crime. And one of the comments that he makes is the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. And oh, I, yeah, I, I love that. Quote. I, it was it's one that I saw years and years ago before I even knew about apologetics or any of that. But I remember getting chills first hearing that quote because it is so true. I mean, the, yeah. if, if you don't know where the enemy is, you are out in the open, you are vulnerable, you're an easy target. And yeah. to an extent, the, the evangelical church, if we're constantly sort of preaching, like he said, this Starbucks Jesus with his plaid uh, shirt and latte, you know, this just sort of 
happy, just wants to have a relationship with you, then we become completely ignorant of the fact that when every step that we take, every time we spend just out in the world as we are in warfare, you don't even see the, the bullets whizzing by your head. And that is a dangerous place to be. I think of the way Jesus is portrayed sometimes in scripture where it says, you know, that his, his eyes are like fire and he has a, he has a sword coming from his mouth mm. and, and hair that's white and, and just this glorious white, you know, he, he's, he's not the, he, he's not buddy Jesus at that point. And uh, he's terrifying. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's like one of those moments that I love. It was from uh, Lord of the Rings. It was the very first one where Gandalf's trying to get Bilbo to give up the mm. ring. And all of a sudden Bilbo's starting to say, no, no, it's my ring. You, you just want it for yourself. And Gandalf, all of a sudden the whole room fills with That's darkness right. and he gets large and he says, Bilbo Baggins, <laughs> do not mistake me for some conjurer of cheap tricks. I am not trying to rob you. Mm. I'm trying to help you. And then he, as he's getting, you know, kind of smaller and more normal, it's like it starts out this terrifying yes. vision of him. And then it slowly goes back to the normal. And of course, Bilbo just starts crying and runs and clings to, to Gandalf yes. because he's realizing that you're right. I have, you know, not spoken to you with the reverence that you deserve as the being that you are. Yes. And so sometimes we try to take Jesus and or, you know, or God, the Father or the Holy Spirit and make him just kind of this lovable, you know, sort of, you know, Gandalf type guy that really likes doing fireworks for the kids. <laughs> but we forget that there is this majestic mm. being in there that when he decides to come out, it will terrify you. But at the same time, it should make you want to run to him. Oh, yeah. And, you know, you see that in Chronicles of Narnia too, the Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe, when the girls are first seeing Aslan, they're kind of staying back to Mr. Otter, and they, they're looking at him with this, sort of this, this fear, but this awe as well. And they ask, is he safe? And Mr. Otter just sort of gives her this shocked look of safe. Of course he's not safe, but he's good. And that's, yeah. we sort of forget that there is that side, that, that holy reverence. Was it otters, bavers? Beavers. Be Did I say beavers. otters? Okay. okay. It was yeah. the beavers. beavers. I apologize. All of a sudden I was like, wait, was it a badger? No, yeah. not the honey badger. <laughs> it was the beaver. <laughs> no, the beaver. I apologize, the beaver. Yeah. Although otters are cute yeah. too. Okay. Continuing on with Simon and just the way he's bringing just the smackdown of all smackdowns, which is why I really love this talk is it just, again, he doesn't mince words. And at the same time, it, we got to listen to what he's saying because he is dead on. Mm -hmm. If you think that having non-Christian books in the house will poison the atmosphere of your house, you are teetering on a view of, of being animistic. That is anti-Christian. There is only one being who can speak things into existence and his name is Yahweh. We are made in the image of God, but I can tell you this now that the Imago Day is a long way from being God. Despite what the Mormons and Shirley MacLaine would have us believe. So here is a sound biblical truth. There is a God and you're not him. <laughs> There is no amount of transcendental meditation, crystal gazing, sacrificing, praying, self-flagellation or guru praising, which is going to give you the attributes of omniscience, omnipotence and omnibenevolence. A finite being, which is what you are, would have to change in order to become an infinite being. And contrary to, contrary to what some popular theologians assert, God does not change. Well, 
perhaps you are a conservative evangelical and you're not of this unrefined Christian chaos. Well, once you have been trained, it is fairly easy for me to sit around here and do my apologetics thing and deal with Oprah Winfrey and Shirley MacRae and the cults and Benny Hinn and his false theology. That's easy, but I'm not going to do that today. You've had many lectures about that stuff. Perhaps you're a fan of John MacArthur or Albert Moeller or Alistair Begg or Charles Stanley or Billy Graham or Adrian Rogers or J.R. Packer or John Piper or David Jeremiah or Tommy Nelson or any one of these conservative evangelical celebrity preachers. Why is it that despite the efforts of these very capable men and thousands others in these ranks, that the conservative evangelical church continues to remain for the most part anti-intellectual? Why is it that those who consider themselves to be the intelligentsia of the evangelical church seem to affect so little change in the trajectory of the church and its impact on culture? If you are not yet persuaded that Protestants are by and large the dunces of society, consider this phenomenon for a moment. Why is it the case that the Catholics still retain some kind of voice at the secular academy in comparison to the Protestant voice? St. Louis, Notre Dame, Duquesne, Marquette. Where is the Protestant voice at the very schools which we started? by conservative Christians. There should be a wailing wall in the U.S. for conservative evangelical Protestants who should be lamenting the loss of just about every academic institution that was started by us to the secularists. How on earth did this unfold? I would suggest to you that much of it has to do with some of our narcissistic Christian views where we center Christianity around me, myself, and I. Is Christianity all about a personal relationship with Jesus? Yes, that's true. But is that the whole story? I suspect that Christianity has more to do with just you and your personal relationship with Jesus. I suspect that God is looking to redeem the whole lot. Out of the evangelical camp today, we find some interesting developments. Now, I want to be careful here. Because I don't want to offend those of you who might be involved in some of these things. We find homeschooling a great development. Oh, it is homeschooling. We started the greatest academic institutions in the world. And we are excited about homeschooling. I just want to mention that I'm pretty sure Simon homeschools his kids, so I don't think he's dissing on homeschooling. I think he's making the statement that we've gone to homeschooling and we have completely left out the fact that we started Yale, Princeton, Harvard, all these schools, and we're getting excited about homeschooling. But I don't think he's meaning, meaning to dis homeschooling because I'm pretty sure he, his wife does that. So that's just a side note. Christians in the past did not only start homeschooling, 
They built the greatest academic institutions in the world and then in an act of insanity handed them over to the secularists without much of a fight. Because they were so consumed with their own personal relationship with Jesus. What do conservative Protestants have in response to the 800 pound gorilla in the room which is the secular academy? That now runs the schools into which we now have to send our young kids where they get cut down like daisies. What do we have in response? Unfortunately, we don't have much. We have a lot of student campus ministries that have reduced Christianity to strumming guitars and eating pizza once a week. I could spend time picking on heretics and so forth in the U.S. But we need to begin by considering our own ranks first. And I am of the opinion that conservative evangelical Christians ought to do some serious reflection and get their act together. Because they have an overinflated view of their efforts. Returning to Ephesians 12, we have established that the verse is speaking of Satan and his cohorts. The problem with Ephesians 6 verse 12 is that it seems to be at odds with other passages in scriptures. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 18 verse 10 to 12. It says they were not to have anything to do with divination. Don't get involved in Ouija boards and that nonsense. So we have a dilemma of sorts here. This is our chief enemy. Ephesians 12 says we shouldn't get involved in this. We seem to be at odds. We seem to be handcuffed behind our backs. Thrown into the boxing field. How do we deal with this? The chief weapon in dealing with Satan, I would submit to you, is understanding the nature of God, the nature of Satan, and the work of Christ. We need to remember that Satan has been defeated. We need to remember that there's deception going on here. And many of you are not going to be confronted by Satan in this life. He's far too clever to do that. He does it in in other countries. He doesn't do it a lot in the West. Ask yourself why. Ask yourself why. We do have a response to Satan. We are told to pray against him. And if you do have the misfortune in bumping into that horned animal, whatever he looks like, then Jesus has given an example of exactly how you need to deal with him. But we should not concern ourselves with Satan too much. Because I fear that this is exactly what he would have us do. I want to now to consider the second regiment in the enemy's ranks. Indeed, you should know that regiment. Because prior to being saved, you were all serving in that regiment. This is the regiment of sinners. And I'm going to suggest that the reason for the lack of success in the spiritual warfare that is mentioned in Ephesians 6 is attributable to the fact that we do not pay much attention to this regiment within the enemy's ranks. Fortunately for us, scripture doesn't leave us stranded on what we ought to do with this group of people. Consider for a moment the daily battles in Christ's ministry. How often was he confronted by Satan? In comparison to the confrontation that he had with men. 
We find that the vast majority of his time is battling with whom? The authorities of the day and the ignorance of his own followers and their crooked characters. Indeed, I'm going to argue that when it comes to true spiritual warfare, that for the most part, our primary focus and primary responsibility is to have very little to do directly with Satan. We pray against him. I do not want to make light of Satan, for he does require our attention, as I have established. And it is clear that our prayers should always be directed against Satan. Indeed, the Lord's Prayer declares that we should we ask God to deliver us from the evil one. However, I'm going to argue that when it comes to true spiritual warfare, that our primary focus and responsibility is, for the most part, being completely misunderstood and ignored. So if we have the stalemate in Ephesians 6 and Deuteronomy, what then do we do? How are Christians then to proceed in engaging in spiritual warfare outside of the limitations placed upon us in dealing with the demonic realm? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 5. Now this is a problematic passage for many in the church today. For the passage clearly declares that we are to declares what we are to be about. Who has a Bible? Yeah, I need to borrow another Bible. Thank you, John. Second <laughs> Corinthians chapter ten. One of these is the Mama Bear verse too. Second Corinthians ten five. Yeah. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Christians, the verse says... We are to be about argumentation and destroying false arguments. We live in an age of sensitivity and political correctness. Worse than spanking your child today is the activity of developing a wild and dangerous opinion of your own that may may be at odds with the opinion of others and then having the courage to share this difference of opinion. For it is considered intolerant today to tell people that they are wrong. In an age in which we live, everybody is right. And this is not surprising because postmodernism, the philosophy of the age, does declare that what's true for you is true for you and what's true for me is true for me. This is the spirit of the postmodern age which leads to all kinds of rampant stupidity and mental constipation of the highest order. (laughs) Indeed, postmodernism leads to an interesting form of hypocrisy for the postmodern folks who believe that everyone is right do, however, strongly think that if you are a conservative evangelical Christian, that you are definitely wrong and somehow maintain that they are not hypocrites with respect to their own philosophy. I just want to point out that a lot of this is what we deal with in the Mama Bear book, even specifically the, the, you're, the truth is there's no truth and you're wrong to tell me that I'm wrong. And so that all the stuff that we talk about in there is not necessarily new stuff that's been going on because I'm pretty sure this. I don't know, how, how long ago was this talk? I feel like it was like 10 years ago, although it says it was published on 2013. I think it was done before that. Yeah, to, to learn more about some of the concepts he's going to start talking about, the Mama Bear book is 
breaks it down in real easy to understand ways. Yeah, he, he, he nails it on the head here. Well, he does. And what's sad is I substitute within a Christian private school. And that's one sphere that you would think that they would have things put together. One of the classes I got to sub for was an apologetics class. So I was super excited. And as the, they were supposed to be filling out this worksheet on evangelism and they were struggling for 10 minutes on the first question because they couldn't figure out. They're like, well, I don't know what I would say to this person because this is my truth, but it might not be their truth. So what do we say? And I was like, oh my gosh, I shut down. It was, it was an hour and a half long class and I shut down the whole lesson. And I said, all right, guys, we're going to deviate off the track here. And we're going to talk about objective truth, subjective truth. We're going to talk about relativism. And we spent the whole rest of the class discussing this because at the beginning of the class, they're like, they were buying into this postmodern philosophy. And then by the end of class, they're having these fun debates over the nature of objective truth. And they, they all walked away saying, wow, you know, this, this actually does exist. There is a problem with this mindset. And it was, it was great to see the growth that happened in that class, but it was really sad that it was just in that one day in their senior year of Christian private school. And they had gone the entire, their entire career, some of them, their school careers, and they were struggling up until that day to understand just these basic concepts. And so it's, it's still very yeah, relevant th- today. This goes to tell you, like, uh, it, we, can, we can be teaching kids evidence for Christianity, but when we have undermined their ability to either recognize evidence or to recognize truth, it doesn't matter what evidence or what truth that we give them. If they don't believe that there is objectively binding truth that's true for all people, it doesn't matter what we, what we tell them. And so uh, that, that was kind of one of the main goals of the book was to go back one step mm-hmm. of where are these questions coming from? Why are they having a hard time even believing the evidential stuff? And that's, that is kind of sad that that was a senior class that didn't understand the concept between, you know, my truth, their truth, and the truth. It's like, what have you been doing this I know, they only had one semester of apologetics for their senior year, and that was, that was all that they got. And it was, uh, it was, it was, it was sad. I was like, oh my gosh, guys, don't leave. Let's just stay and talk more forever. (laughs) Okay, back to Simon. Turning now back to 2 Corinthians, verses 3 and 4 give us the ground rules with respect to engaging in Christian warfare. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have the power to demolish strongholds. Even men who go to war are meant to war according to a set of rules. Men horrified by war have established the Geneva Conventions. These are rules for war. But in a war, it is often difficult to enforce laws, for in a war, authority is established by force. According to this passage, Christians have been tasked with the very, very difficult thing of not waging war as the world does. There are Christ's rules of engagement, and there are no exceptions. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. Well, what are the weapons that Christians should use? The weapon is an offensive weapon. And in Ephesians 6, it is the sword of the Spirit. It is the Word of God. Now notice the second half of verse 4 says that whatever these weapons are, what does it have the power to do? Apparently, these weapons, which you and I have access to, have what? Divine power. Let me say that again. Divine power to demolish strongholds. It is verse 5 in 2 Corinthians which does not sit well with many. 
But it is in this verse which we get some indication of the nature of that weapon at work. And apparently when you put it to work, what do we find going on? We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. This verse, these verses explicitly declare that we are to read about the very thing which many on the church are seeking to avoid, and that is argumentation. Some translations use the word speculation. Some translations employ the word arguments. To take captive, as I understand in the Greek, means to take captive as in war, making ideas obedient to Christ. Defending the faith is not merely memorizing a Bible verse to throw out into the culture like a bird seed and then to think that you have now defended the faith. Defending the faith is not just preaching the gospel, which is, I have, which is a slogan I have heard from many conservative evangelicals a nauseating amount of time. Just preach the gospel. The Bible does not tell you to do that. It says preach the gospel and defend the faith. You are to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ by demolishing an argument. Demolishing an argument requires that you understand what a premise and a conclusion is. And what a bad argument is. One in which the conclusion doesn't follow from the premises. What is needed in every single conservative evangelical end of program in the country is a class in logic. Because evangelicals all assume that they are good thinkers. I would submit to you that most end of grads couldn't even tell you what a syllogism is. Perhaps we should exchange our pious Bible memorizing skills and God forbid some of the other theological classes for a class in critical thinking skills. The culture is awash with informal fallacies and most students trained at conservative evangelical institutions could not tell you the difference between an informal fallacy and a formal fallacy. I find it odd that for all of the exegetical prowess of evangelical schools, conservative ones, that it is odd that they seem to have missed out what is demanded of elders in the New Testament. What distinguishes an elder from a deacon? The capacity to teach. But listen to what Titus 1.9 declares. He must hold firmly and to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. So that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose. The second half of this verse seems to have, seems to have been completely missed by conservative evangelical seminary presidents. Who ought to be making sure that the end of grads can do more than merely preach a good sermon. I would submit to you that one of the key reasons for the anemic impact of conservative evangelicalism on the culture is directly attributable to the fact that we collectively are going to graduate another couple of thousand of MDiv students next year in May who do not know how to defend the Christian faith. And this verse tells them what is expected of an elder. And I'm assuming that people who get end of degrees are going to be elders. To my conservative evangelical brothers who are the presidents of these seminaries, Albert Moeller, Danny Aiken, Paige Pattersons, 
And I'm not scared of Paige Patterson and his cowboy hat and his Labrador and the pistol in the back of his pants either. <laughs> to John MacArthur, to the guys at DTS, to the people at Asbury, to the people at Trinity, to the people at Wheaton College. And the list goes on. You know who you are. It is unacceptable that you do not make apologetic training mandatory for your students. It is unacceptable that it is merely presented as an elective. Your responsibility is to train pastors and missions people, all of these people you train, most of whom are going to be elders, who can both preach the, preach the gospel and defend the faith. That's what Titus 1.9 says, why have you missed it? To the pastors of influence in the United States of America, you have a responsibility as well to encourage, promote, and help us demonstrate how apologetics works in the local church. So then to my friends, Mr. Driscoll, John Piper, David Jeremiah, Rick Warren, Bill Hybels, Tommy Nelson, John Monroe here in town, Alistair Big, you men have a responsibility to help the other pastors who don't know what apologetics is. Show them what this looks like in the church. Help us apologists with that task. Because they won't listen to Simon Brace because they don't know who I am and I don't particularly care. <laughs> He's about to go into basically um, just the need for churches to help those who are in apologetics ministry. I think that this is a, a good place to stop to before we go on to our third one. And I just have to say, some might see Simon is coming off as abrasive, but you can hear his passion. Mm. Um, it reminds me of Paul. At times I'm listening to him and I'm like, man, he is just coming in there with, with fire, but also of truth. I mean, you get, you get that John the Baptist as well. Just he's calling out truth. And sometimes like salt is, sometimes it's abrasive. Sometimes it stings a little, but it also leads mm -hmm. to healing. Well, I mean, when you see that the, the fate of the Western church is writing mm -hmm. on this, is writing, uh, it's like, how could you not be passionate about yeah. this? Again, this is why I think this is one of those those talks that I just want to listen to on a regular basis, just because there's there's so much there's so much unashamed truth that's in there. Of course, you know, we as mama bears, we usually try to be a little bit more gentle in, in the way we present things. But I think it's important to sometimes have someone bring the smack down. And I think, you know, in some ways this might be the what's the word? Just that that complimentary model of having men and women in apologetics, that there's some people that need a really swift kick in the pants and there's some people that need a yeah. nurse. He, he's addressing things from the kick in the pants because that's that's kind of his personality. That's got how God made him. And uh, God bless him for that, because he does. Yeah, like I said, he doesn't pull punches and he doesn't mince words and he, he doesn't care if he offends someone, if this is something that needs to be said. And the fact that he's speaking to I mean, he, he's calling himself out on just as much as he's calling anybody else yeah. out. So, I mean, there's a lot of self-reflection going on there. One thing no, that I like that he's doing, though, is he sh he's highlighting the importance of Scripture, but he's kind of showing how the church has sort of lost its perception on how powerful it is. I mean, this is, this is a weapon. My son, he's, he's nine, and he's trying to convince me to get him a pocket knife for his birthday at 10. And, you know, I, I'm very leery for that. 
But I also know that when it comes to weapons and things, you you have to take care. You have to teach him not only what the weapon is, but how to handle it. And he's showing how the mm-hmm. church has not been doing that well. And I think it's yeah. really neat when you do look at the armor of God, you notice that in verse 17, the sword is mentioned last. And I think, and perhaps I'm, I'm overthinking this a little, but I had studied this passage before and I looked at how the Romans used to train their soldiers. And the very last thing you would get that signified that you were actually a soldier was your sword. You didn't get that at first. You had a wooden Mm. sword at first to practice, to prepare you. It was weighted the same. Uh, Sometimes it was actually weighted heavier. So that way you could build up your strength. And so it was only after that you had proven yourself capable, faithful, that sort of thing that you got this sword. And I think it's interesting that he lists that last as well as showing that, look, this is not something to be taken lightly. You need to understand the, the power, the impact, the ability to protect as well as to inflict harm. And so we have to be careful and be aware that the word of God is is not something that's delicate. It is in fact powerful. Well, also the fact that the scripture, it's like there's a certain period of time when someone is developing in their Christian Mm -hmm. walk that they need to be learning first before they're going out and waving the sword around. Because it's like, again, you have to know how to use the sword before it's a good idea. My husband gives the example of a mugger running towards you has a knife or a doctor coming towards you has a knife. They both have the intention of mm-hmm. cutting you, but one of them's different. One of them has yes. skill. One of them knows what they're doing with it. And the other person is just wanting to harm you. And so I think there's a lot of, it's that phrase, uh, I can't remember the, the verse where it talks about, do not have zeal without knowledge. Mm-hmm. That uh, a lot of times we have Christians who have a lot of zeal, but not knowledge. And the, the amount of damage that happens with having zeal without knowledge cannot be underestimated. I, I, I like to sometimes call that the atheist maker. <laughs> There's certain types of heart attacks that they call the widow maker, but certain types of personalities wielding scripture in a way that is not doing surgery and not taking things obedient to Christ, but really treating it like, you know, a four-year-old who just got got a stick and wants to to, to play <laughs> to play, you know, battle with, with his buddy, you would never give them a real sword because basically they're going to kill their friend. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> yeah, so we've got the atheist makers out there who are wanting to, again, I think I say the, the word of God will not return void. I'm going to throw out my truth bombs and let, let the pieces fall where they may. And that is a, a real problem in our, in our society. Absolutely. Well, without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and put this one to a stop and we're going to go to part three and finish up with this talk by Simon Brace, which I really hope that all of y'all are enjoying right now, just because I think he, he gives such an incredible presentation on this idea of spiritual warfare in a way that I don't think that we have considered mm. before. I consider this talk empowering. So. This has been a Mama Bear Apologetics recording. To learn more about Mama Bear Apologetics, please visit us on the web at www.mamabearapologetics.com. We hope you learned a little more about how to sift through ideas, accept the good, reject the bad, and now you can go teach your kids to do the same. Do you have any questions or maybe some ideas about future podcast episodes? Send us an email to askthemamabears at gmail.com and we'll do our best. Rise up, ladies. Rise up, Mama Bears. We are all in this together.